Matthew chapter 27. It's been a, uh, uh, an insightful chapter. We've watched as Jesus has been tried, he's been beaten, he's been scourged, he's been mocked, he's been convicted, he's been sentenced to death by crucifixion from Pilate. On his way to the cross, on his way to Calvary, he was unable to carry his cross. Simon the Cyrene was recruited by the Romans to carry the cross for him. When we ended last week, Jesus was hanging on the cross. We kind of ended in the middle there, but he was hanging on the cross. And what the last thing that we saw was one of the thieves had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He had believed he, that one thief was, in the beginning, we saw both thieves mocking him on the cross. And at some point along the way, one of the thieves had a change of heart. And he came to Jesus Christ. He heard the words, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, we're going to be together here in just a little bit. We're not going to make it too much longer. But when you pass from this earth, you will be with me in paradise. And tonight we pick up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. It says this. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was a darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sixth hour. He's on the cross. It's 12 noon. From 12 noon to 3 p.m., there's complete darkness that fell upon the land. Most Bible scholars tell us, and Mark substantiates it, he went on the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning. So he's been hanging on the cross for about three hours, hanging there. Three hours, hanging there. During those first three hours, do you know that he only broke the silence three times. He made three statements in those first three hours. The first one he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Luke records that for us. A short while later, he said to the thief beside him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me or you shall be with me in paradise. And shortly after that, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. That's it in three hours. Pain, agony, his back filleted wide open, his hands nailed to a cross, a nail through his feet, three hours. I suspect he was trying to breathe. At the beginning of the second three hours, we read there's a great darkness that falls upon the land. And that word for land, it can also be translated earth. Perfectly good translation there. So it's possible darkness fell upon the whole earth. Some scholars would suggest, no, it was just that region. Others would say, no, it was the whole earth. Personally, I believe it was the whole earth. Some people attribute it to some sort of eclipse. Others say it was too long for an eclipse. Luke tells us simply the sun was darkened, which means it was obscured. All I know is for those three hours, the sun ceased to shine. Think about those words. The sun ceased to shine at least in and around that area of Jerusalem, and I believe likely the entire world. So what's the significance of this? Why did it go dark? What was the purpose? What was the reasoning? I don't think the Bible gives any direct indication as to why the sun was darkened, but I must tell you that there are several Old Testament passages that seem to establish darkness. It connects darkness with the judgment of God. When someone is cast into outer darkness, it's the absence of light. Even the Jewish priests would associate darkness with the judgment of God. At about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Earlier, they had been taunting him. They'd been making fun of him. They'd be laughing at him for claiming to be God's son. And now he quotes when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Old Testament passage of Psalm 22. That's what he's quoting. Psalm 22, verse 1, starts with that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, suffer, the, the title of that passage is called The Suffering, Praise, and Posterity of the Messiah. I suspect in his mind that's what he said, but I, I, I wonder if the whole passage ran through his head. I wonder if the whole thing ran right through his head from verse 1 all the way down to the end. I think we should read it. Let's turn to Psalm 22. Bear with me, it's just a little bit long, but I think it's important. It's written by David, the suffering praise and posterity of the Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, now just imagine, in pain, hanging on the cross, this is what's running through your head. This is what's running through his mind. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I, I am a worm. I got to pause right there for a moment. Because right there in the Hebrew, he doesn't use the traditional word for worm. He uses a word, the Hebrew word there is called toloth. And it's more of like a, a grub if you can consider a worm. And this grub is very, very interesting because the way that it would, the way that it lived, it would climb up onto a tree. Okay, it would lay its eggs underneath of its body and it would affix its body around its eggs, protecting, it, protecting the young and also protecting, uh, and, and the young would feed off of that worm. When it was time for those little baby worms to go out on their own, the body of the mother worm would open up. It was scarlet red. It would leave a blood-stained mark on that tree. And they would crawl away. And the mother would die there on that tree. And there would be a, a stain where that worm was. Toloth is the word there. Oftentimes those worms were, cut, were, were gathered, crushed to dye garments in that crimson or that red color. Jesus on the cross is, I believe he's considering, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. There they are making fun of him. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Isn't that what they said? Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast, from your, cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. They're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joints. That's a way of saying I'm in a lot of pain. It hurts. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my, my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. 
for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. You ever been in so much pain you know every bone? I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Notice the change here. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous on the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow down before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. All posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. That's us. The people who will be born, he's done this. Turn back with me to Matthew 27. There he is on the cross considering this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out at the very moment of pain, at the very brink of death the very right on the very edge of giving up his spirits he's praising God he still finds a reason to praise God for the first and only time in eternity Jesus is separated from the father because you might ask why because the son had taken sin upon himself he had taken all of the sin of the world upon himself that includes you and I The father had turned his back. That mystery is great and imponderable. It's hard to understand. It's difficult. Martin Luther himself at one point in his life went to seclusion for a long time trying to understand these three hours of darkness. And when he was done, he came away just as confused as he was when he began. It's hard. Sometimes you run across these things in Scripture. You go, I can play with this in my head for years and never get it. Well, you're in good company. Martin Luther couldn't understand it either. Many people look at it, and I'm one of them. I I wish I could tell you exactly what all is happening. All I know is what the scripture says, that that's where he paid the price for our sins. One commentator explained it this way. He said, in the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary. As the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son, who in matchless grace became sin for those who believe in him. I thought that was a great explanation. Let me read it to you again. In the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary as the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son who in matchless grace became sin 
for those who believe in him. Jesus asked God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on this earth, Jesus had known great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, yet he had never known separation from the Father. This was the first and only time he had been separated from the Father. At this moment, he had been experiencing what he had never experienced before. There was a significant sense that Jesus rightly felt forsaken. He really felt that way at this moment. And the people around him, they're mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're laughing at him. If you're really the son of God, let God save you. Look at verse 47. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. That was fulfilling yet another prophecy. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And I'm sure there was a sarcastic tone in that. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The fact that he cried out at the very end of his life is significant. When you read the history and you read the accounts, most people became, before they died didn't have the strength to cry out. They couldn't cry out with a loud voice. They could barely, if you've ever been around somebody that's passing, a lot of times their voice is very weak. You can barely understand what they're saying. He cried out with a loud voice, it says. And I believe his final two sayings on the cross were, number one, it is finished. Number two, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said that, he breathed his last breath. It is finished. Those are, those are faithful words for us. It is finished. What do I have to do to be saved? Believe on Jesus Christ. No, there's got to be more. No, it is finished. He paid the price on the cross for my sin, for your sin, and all those who would believe in him. You see, the reason that we walk in obedience is not because we have to. It's because we get this, we, we get this understanding. The longer you walk with him, the, the more you realize, I cannot imagine giving up what he gave up. He would only give that up if he loved me that much. It's not I have to walk in obedience. I get to walk in obedience. It's not I have to, I have to follow the word. I get to follow the word. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to follow God's word and walk in God's ways. It shouldn't be a difficult, it shouldn't be difficult. Well, it is difficult, but it shouldn't be a burden to you. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had previously told his disciples no one could take his life from him. But that he was going to do what? I'm going to lay it down. He's always been in control from the Garden of Gethsemane on. Remember when he breathed, the soldiers fell over. Peter cut off Malchus's ear and he put it back. He was in control of the whole situation. He has the authority to lay his life down and he has the authority to take it up again. On the cross... God the Father judged the sin of the world. He created a new covenant with mankind, a new agreement, if you will. The Son took upon himself, and the Son who divinely controls living and dying, this is Jesus, willfully, willingly surrendered his life as a penalty for sin. How many people in this world are you willing to give up your life for? You go, well, maybe a, maybe a few wife my kids but not many I can tell you that I don't know that I would die for all of you guys would you die for me probably not and that's okay that's all right 
But here's what you have to understand. When he looks at you, he said, I'll die for you. I'll go to the, if you were the only one, he still would have went to the cross. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that sin. I'll take all those sins from you. That's what makes us go, wow. It's unbelievable. He gave up his spirit. He's in control. He willingly surrendered. He decided when it was finished. He's the one that yielded up his spirit, still once in control. Now, let me just play with something here. Did death really have dominion over him if he never sinned? Not really. The, the, the consequence of sin is death, but he hadn't sinned, so he could have gone on living. But he had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. By one man, Adam, death was brought into the world. By another man, life. By Christ, life comes into the world. And he gave up his spirit. Look what happens in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many. First thing Matthew notes is the veil in the temple. It was torn. This is the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You had the holy place first, and behind that you had the holy of holies. In the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy of holies, the high priest would only go once a year with blood of the lamb to sprinkle on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. That's where God was dwelling, in the holy of holies. Only once a year could man come in. And then Matthew points out, and I think it's significant, that the, the, the veil that's cu cutting man's access to God, it's cutting it off, is now torn. But it's not torn from the bottom to the top. It's torn from the top to the bottom. Why is that significant? It's as if God reached out of heaven and said, Rip, I'm not going to do this anymore. We're gonna, man's going to come to me in a different way now. Man's going to come to me by the, by the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. No longer through the priesthood. No longer is there a mediator of a, of a, of a priest between man and God. We've been saying that in Hebrews on Sunday. But Jesus Christ is now our high priest. He becomes the mediator. We don't need the old priesthood any further. Torn in two from top to bottom. Can you imagine if you were a priest in the temple, ministering on that day, getting ready for Passover, getting ready, and all of a sudden that veil tore, and you were looking in the Holy of Holies. Now, you know that if the person went in there and they weren't, hadn't cleansed themselves properly, they would die. And now all of a sudden it's hanging wide open for everyone to see. God is saying, here I am. I'm available. The old covenant had been fulfilled. The law had been fulfilled. A new covenant that was written in the blood of Christ is now instituted. Amazing. Notice it also says there, the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Remember a week before, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And the people were crying out, Hosanna. And the high priest, the Levites, they, they, they tried to stop him. The scribes and the Pharisees, rather, they tried to stop him from crying out. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out, these stones will cry out. Now it is death. The stones are split. They're crying out. Hear the rocks and nature cry out at the death of Christ. Charles Spurgeon made this comment. He said, men's hearts did not respond to the agonizing cries of the dying Redeemer, but the rocks responded. 
The rocks were rent or torn. He did not die for rocks, yet the rocks were more tender than the hearts of men for whom he shed his blood. How soft is a rock? It's hard. Yet sometimes man's heart heart can be harder than the very rocks on the ground. The rocks were torn, were split at the death of Christ. Now that last part, I've been waiting for you to get there. Tell me more about those people waking up from the dead. There's certainly some confusion. It says the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The graves were opened and many, notice it doesn't say all, it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the way this is written, you could assume that the earth, or you, you have a tendency there to assume that the earth quake and the splitting rocks caused the graves to open and some people would say that's exactly what happened the graves opened but they didn't come alive until after the resurrection because it says there after his resurrection others say no no there's supposed to be a break there or a period should be after the phrase coming out of the graves so there gets to be a little bit of a back and forth between bible scholars and commentators on exactly how this went either way it says this and and i I get this is kind of hard to wrap your mind around i understand that Either way, it says it appears there's believers who had previously died, came back to life, and entered the city of Jerusalem after the resurrection. You go, I just just can't understand that. Me either. I don't really know. I don't don't, know. I can't explain that. Well, what did it look like? Zombie apocalypse? I don't know. I have no idea what it really looked like. But when it comes to these areas of Scripture, especially the difficult ones, I always just go, you know what? That's what it says, so that's what I'm going to believe. Well, explain it to me more. I, I, I wish I could. You know, and I hate to tell you, but Bible scholars have been arguing about this for years. What really happened? When you get to heaven, you ask John, because he was there. You go, hey, John, tell me about that rock splitting, people walking out. Thing. Ask Jesus, better yet. Ask Moses, maybe he'll tell you. He, was, he, he watched it too. Ask somebody about it, because I, I don't have a better explanation for you. I wish I did. And the more I study it, the more I try to land on somewhere and what's really taken, the more I go, I don't know. I'm not sure. What we know is there was an earthquake. What we know is the rock split. And what we know at some point, there was believers who had passed away, who were brought back to life. Perhaps it was their spiritual body. We don't know exactly how it happened. But they entered the city of Jerusalem to prove the power of the resurrected Lord. That's what we do know. There was an earthquake at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. And there was an earthquake at Calvary when the law was fulfilled. Think about that. The earth was quaking at Mount Sinai when God gave the law. Remember the Jewish people? We don't want it. Moses, you go talk to him. Tell us what he says. The earth was quaking. Thunder and lightning. And here at Calvary, once again, when the law is fulfilled, the earth is quaking. The torn veil indicates that he conquered sin. The earthquake suggests that he conquered the law and fulfilled it. And the resurrection proves he defeated death. Prove it, Rob. Prove that Jesus Christ accomplished what he did. The earthquake proves it. The torn veil proves it, and the resurrection proves that he conquered death. The proof is there. Look at verse 54. Even the Roman soldiers get it. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. I got to believe this wasn't this Roman centurion's first crucifixion. It was probably his detail he was assigned to. He probably witnessed hundreds of death. Yet at the death of Christ, 
He was so moved, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. The only mistake he made, he should have said, this is the Son of God. This was the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Now, sometimes Bible scholars argue over this too. Was he saved? Is it an admission of faith? Did this indicate saving faith? Some people say, yep, it sure does. Others say, well, not necessarily. You can pick and choose what you want to believe there. At bare minimum, it indicated that hearts were open to the truth. And, were, and the Roman soldiers were being moved by what they saw, by the events going on around them. There was something happening in their hearts. Where it went from there, I don't know. They saw something they had never seen before. They came to the realization, because we're looking on this, this is the Son of God. What they do with that, that will determine their salvation. Do they believe on him? You see, because even the demons believe and tremble, James tells us. You can come to the realization there's a God, but it doesn't mean you're saved. You can come to the realization that Jesus was a real person, but it doesn't mean you're saved. Do you believe on him? Do you have faith in him? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Are you following him? Once you believe, once you follow, then, you, then you're saved. And you can know for sure that you're saved. Look at verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and, mo- and the mother of Zebedee's son, sons. The only disciple there at the cross was John. But many women were watching from a distance. These are the ladies that undoubtedly helped him in his ministry, who ministered to him. Mary Magdalene, she's the one that had been delivered from seven demons. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, she was one of the ladies who would be at the tomb during the resurrection. Possibly the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Salome, the mother of James and John, she's the one that asked for, can one of my sons sit on your right hand and one of my sons sit on your left? I wonder what she thought now. When you get into your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on your right hand? Can another one on your left? I bet that was out of her mind at this moment. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also been a disciple, but had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. He departed, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Typically, at the crucifixion, or at the end of a crucifixion, the bodies were left up on the cross. The Romans didn't want to take them down. They wanted them to be a display for as long as possible. Many times the animals ate them. The birds feasted on them. Seldom were they giving a proper burial. However, when the families asked, permission would be granted for them to be removed. With Passover approaching, they probably wanted so many people coming into Jerusalem. They didn't want the bodies on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea goes, asks for it. He'd probably bought this tomb and prepared it for himself. It was a Kind of like no different than you would make plans for your funeral and your arrangements ahead of time. It's probably something very similar to that. When they came to Pilate, where it said that Pilate was surprised the crucifixion was so quick. He didn't expect him to be dead, so it happened so fast. And to make sure, he had a spear thrust up through his side. Sometimes crucifixions would last up to three days. Pilate allowed them to take the body. 
Jesus' body was treated and prepared in the typical way that others were treated during that time. The large rock that was rolled in front of the door was typical in a Jewish tomb. They'd carve the rock to roll in. It would carve a track for the rock to roll in. They'd leave the body in there for a couple of years until it decomposed. And they would take the bones. They'd put them in a small box called an ossuary. And they would keep them somewhere over in the corner of the tomb. It would be a family tomb for many years and perhaps many generations to come. This was typical. This is the way that Christ is buried in a, in a tomb, that, tomb that no one else had been buried in. It's a brand new tomb. It had been carved out of a rock. When you go to Israel, you can go to a place called the Garden Tomb, and they're not sure if it's exactly the tomb that he was buried in, but it was probably on that hillside because there's, a, there's, a, there's an outcropping called Golgotha that looks like the, the plate, like a shape of a skull. Although it's being, it's being uh, eroded away very, very quickly. Recently, the Muslims have fired off a cannon twice a day during Ramadan on top of Golgotha, so it's causing the, the hill to collapse. There's an Arab bus station right below it. But off to the left, along the hillside, there's, what, the, there's the Garden Tomb. And just like we read in the Bible, it's, it's, just, it's built. There's a, there's a track for a rock to roll in. There's a small opening that someone could come in. There's two chambers inside where a body could be laid out there. It's just like we would read here. We don't know if it was the exact location, but it's certainly the place on that hillside somewhere is likely where he was buried. Jesus is now off the cross. He's in the tomb. Look at verse 50, or 62 to see what the priests are up to. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Now, if they actually approached, like the scripture says, and I believe they did, they approached on the next day, which is the day after preparation, that means it's the first day. Or a Sabbath day of Passover. You know what that means? That means they broke their own Sabbath law. They were supposed to stay in on the Sabbath. They were not supposed to go out. But notice this in their very complaint to Pilate. They understood what Jesus meant when he said on the third day I'll rise again. They understood it. They knew it. And by asking the way they did. They're number one confirming his death. They knew he was dead. We remember while, we remember while he was still alive. How that deceiver, notice they, they call him a deceiver. How that deceiver, I haven't even got to three days yet. I think I'd wait till three days before I made that remark. They're admitting and confirming that he's dead by saying while he's still alive. And that would defeat the argument that would later come where they would say the disciples stole his body before he was completely dead. They stole it off the cross. They took him down. He wasn't dead. They hid him away. They nursed him back to health. Well, here in their own admission, here by their own history, they're saying he's dead. He said, he, we know he's dead, but the problem is he said he's going to come back from the death. From the, he's going to rise from the dead. So we have to do something here. So they go to Pilate and say, Pilate, we've got a problem. He said he was going to rise in three days. We need you to put a group, we need, to put you to, we need you to guard that tomb. Pilate's probably thinking, why would I guard the tomb of a dead man? Where's he going to go? He's dead. My soldier said he was dead. You guys say he's dead. He's dead. Yet there's still people that would argue that he wasn't really dead. The Jews said he was dead. Pilate said he's dead. The soldiers said he's dead. Everybody says he's dead. Verse 64, then Pilate commanded that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Fine. Lest his disciples come by night, they steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So they're worried about the disciples stealing a dead body, saying he's risen from the dead and him never being seen again. That's their, that's their fear. So the last deception will be worse than the first. 
Pilate said to them, you have a guard? Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Make it as secure. In other words, I don't want, don't let him out of that tomb. Okay, he's not coming out. Make it as secure as you know how. Now, have you ever seen the movie Risen? They predict those Roman guards as kind of like they're, they're drinking and they're kind of like not really paying attention. They're haphazard. I don't think that's the way the military operates. I don't, I, I don't think that you would take a, an assignment like that and, 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 you know, goof off like that. I think if you're, if you're told, to, you're, you're given an order, you carry out that order or you wouldn't be a very good soldier. You certainly wouldn't be in there very long. You have to be able to follow commands, follow direction. Your life is on the line. For if he was to be gone, you know what happened to those soldiers? They would be killed for failing to carry out their order. Make it as secure as you know how. Don't let him come out of that tomb. Verse 66, so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. That means they sealed the stone with probably some kind of wax. They would have put a mark in it so it couldn't be opened. They wanted to make sure that there, there is no way he's coming out. And more importantly, they weren't worried about him coming out. There's no way anybody's going in there. We were going to keep anybody from going in. And I don't think they even thought twice about him coming out. They were convinced that he was dead. And if, in fact, the soldiers were like in that movie Risen, where they were kind of like haphazard and drinking and taking it as an easy assignment, it certainly wasn't because they thought he was coming out. The disciples had forgotten that Jesus promised to rise again. Yet he told them several times. But yet the priest remembered. Isn't that interesting? The disciples forgot, the priest remembered. His enemies remembered. Pilate permitted the leaders to set a guard at the tomb. This guard put out an official Roman seal to make sure that no one's getting in and certainly no one's coming out. Now, this is such a blessing of God. Do you see God's hand in this? God wants to prove the resurrection and he uses the Romans to do it. You guys secure the tomb. You guys, all right, fine. You, you do everything you can to make that. So it's got to be an act of God if he comes out of that tomb. Or somebody get just make it as secure as you know how. And it says they did it. They made it as secure as they know how. Without realizing it, the Jewish leaders and the Roman government joined forces to help prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Romans were involved. The Jewish leaders were involved. And yet there's still people who say, no, the disciples stole it away. There's no way the disciples were going to steal that body away. Not happening. They've got a guard around that tomb. It's sealed. And those soldiers certainly aren't going to let a couple of guys from Galilee walk in there, push that stone out of the way and take that body out of there and then tell everyone that he rose from the dead. But at the same time, can you imagine being one of the disciples? Been following Jesus for three years and now he's dead. You've given up your family business, given up your tax collecting business. You've given up your dreams of what you had planned. Jesus said, follow me, you did. And now things aren't going like you expected. I thought he was going to be the king of Israel. And I wanted to be in charge. I figured I'd have a few people under me. I'd be on the right hand. Hey, at least the 12 of us have to, well, Judas is gone. So the 11 of us have to be pretty well set off. I and mean, we've been hanging out with them for three years. And now they're devastated. Peter, remember Peter just last night denied Jesus. Didn't even, he's, he's, he's probably crushed beyond all belief. I'll die with you, Lord. And there he is, Jesus is dead and Peter's alive. He swore his allegiance. And life isn't going like they expected it. 
Have you noticed life doesn't go like you expected? Have you noticed you make your plans? You think God's going to do one thing, you got it all planned out, kind of like they did. God's going to do this and this and this and this. And then you get partway into it and you go, this isn't going like I expected. It's much harder than I expected. It's like, all right, it's okay. Don't worry, I got it. I know what I'm doing. No, I don't think you do, God. Yes, I do. This is my heart with him. No, you don't, God. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. And finally, I come to the realization, yes, he does. He knows exactly what he's doing. In my life, in your life, in all of our lives. Don't be surprised when it doesn't go like you expected. Right now, the disciples are devastated. They're crushed. I'm sure the weeping and the sobbing going on by the women, they're crushed. Now, we have the benefit of knowing what's coming next. You see, for them, can you imagine what Friday and Saturday felt like? Can you imagine the, the burden they carried Friday and Saturday, not knowing? I mean, we all, we've, we know what Sunday brings. But they didn't at this time. They didn't know what was coming Sunday. Friday, Saturday, and they were wondering, Sunday. And that's where that scripture ends. I'm going to leave us there. On Resurrection Sunday, we'll pick up in chapter 28. Before we do, though, I want to take just a few minutes. And I want you to take a few minutes to go before the Lord quietly on your own. As we consider his death, his burial, certainly we also want to add his resurrection to that. But... I think that in our culture, sometimes we forget the significance of the cross. Sometimes the cross becomes an emblem. And it can even become an idol. And we forget the personalization behind it. We say that he saved the, for all the sins in the world. That's true. But you know what? The only sins in the world that matter to you are yours. So just take a few minutes. Go before the Lord quietly on your own. Wherever you're at with him. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe, it's, maybe you're in the midst of your life and it's not going like you planned and you have to say, hey, Lord, I, I, it's, life isn't going like I planned. Forgive me for doubting you. Maybe you have to recommit your life to him. Maybe you need to accept him for the first time. I don't know. Maybe you need to realize, maybe you just, the light bulb just went off and goes, wow, this is actually real. He really did die for my sins. Yes, he did. Well, how do I, how do, I do? Just tell him, tell him you love him. Ask him for forgiveness. Tell him you're a sinner. You want to be washed in his blood and just covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't want to stand... In, in, before him, before the Lord, and for your sins one day, you want, you want to be covered by the blood of Christ. So just take those next two minutes, three minutes. Just, I hate to end a Bible study like this and just go on our way. So let's just take a couple minutes and spend it with the Lord. Lord, as we open our heart to you for these next couple of minutes, would you just speak to us, minister to us, touch us, whatever we need, Lord. Open your heart to the Lord now and just share.